Two weeks into the continuing resolution, agencies hoping to start new initiatives are now looking towards December 16th. That's when Congress promised to establish a 2023 budget. History shows that's a pretty thin reed to lean on. My next guest isn't ruling out the possibility of a full-year continuing resolution. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners, and he joins me now. And yes, we have seen this in our lifetimes, full-year CRs. And in fact, the current fiscal year didn't start until a few months to go. So December 16th doesn't have all that much meaning if you're in contracting, does it? Tom, December 16th is really the best case scenario for when contractors and their government partners could expect to see maybe some final action on FY23 appropriations. But I'm sorry, I'm a little bit of a pessimist. I don't think we're actually going to see the best case scenario. I think we're going to end up uh, with something a little bit delayed this year, Tom, even more delayed than December. Yes. And even if they reach December 16th, sometimes they do something even worse than another long piece. And that's a day-to-day type of thing while they scurry around the uh, denizens there, scurry around the basement cobwebs of the, uh, of the, of the buildings on Capitol Hill. <laughs> well, I certainly can see that being something that would happen this year. Uh, as you point out, uh, look, December 16th is when the government is currently funded through that day. But even if there's a deal that's imminent to get appropriations done in December, and, and I think we all hope that there will be, it's highly likely that we would see a 24 or 48-hour CR just to get all of the you know, packages wrapped and the bows done on the, on the appropriations presence. So uh, it probably wouldn't be the 16th. It might be the 17th, 18th, or 19th. But even then, Tom, we're talking about best-case scenario Uh, I think what we really have to look at is what might happen in the congressional midterm elections. Uh, If Republicans take one or both houses during the midterm elections in November, I think it's very probable that we're not going to see any final action in December. We'll see another CR, uh, undoubtedly, but we'll see one that probably takes us to the third or fourth week of January. And then the new Congress will have the ability to come in and hopefully finish the work that this Congress uh, started. Uh, But that crystal ball then gets pretty hazy indeed. So uh, I think that if we see some change in the political tides, we're definitely looking at a significantly delayed appropriations process. And there's an ironic thing going on that you are also telling your clients this week. And even though the government is in a continuing resolution and can't really, in theory, start new initiatives, there is a requirement from the White House on agencies to increase the amount of contracting they do with small and disadvantaged businesses up a percentage point versus what they did last year, which is kind of a strange juxtaposition to change your contracting strategy when you're on a CR. Yeah, that's an excellent point, Tom. Uh, Continuing resolutions by their definition basically keep things going that were already happening. So there's no new project starts. And if there are no new project starts, and it's going to be difficult to make new contract awards to any type of business, whether it's a small disadvantaged business or anybody else, certainly there are alternative funding sources, things uh, so-called no-year money. Some agencies have capital improvement funds. But those types of projects, Tom, are pretty specific in how they can be used. And there certainly aren't a lot of dollars in them compared to the appropriations route. So 
Last year, the uh, executive branch did 11% of prime contracting with small disadvantaged businesses, which is great. The administration, as you noted, ticked it up to 12% for this year. The ultimate objective is to achieve 15% a couple of years from now. But I think that's going to be difficult if we essentially are cutting the FY23 fiscal year in half, which is kind of what I'm predicting now, uh, and still be able to reach those socioeconomic goals. I think the other thing that's notable about those socioeconomic goals, Tom, is that if you look at it, the government's own small business goal is still 23%. And now we have small disadvantaged businesses uh, supposed to be accounting for over half of that, slightly over half if they hit 12%. And if you're another type of small business, service disabled, better known, women owned, or just a plain small business, you've got to think about how that's going to impact your small business set aside portfolio and what that means. Similarly, if you're a large business, you're thinking more about maybe teaming with small disadvantaged businesses uh, if you know that this administration is actually serious about uh, escalating to 15%. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Yeah, so that really then squeezes out traditional small business that might not fit in any of the socioeconomic categories. You're just simply small. Right. I think that that's going to be a real challenge for some small businesses. I'm kind of surprised that we haven't seen Congress increase the small business goal overall, Tom. The government, at least on paper, has hit its small business contracting goal for at least two or three of the last several years. And anytime you meet a goal, what's your reward? Well, you get a new goal to meet. But we haven't seen that yet. I think that if I were a small business that didn't have that SDB designation, I would be asking my elected officials if they could take a look at increasing the overall goal just so that I could keep my small business portfolio active even as specific designations have their own goals increased. I've got my folks that I want to keep employed and keep busy, just like everybody else. So uh, it would be good to, I think, uh, to, to have that acknowledgement. And if all of that wasn't enough, there is the new and increased risk of suspension and debarment that's coming not so much from the White House to find causes to do this to companies, but coming from Congress, or at least some members of Congress. It is coming from some members of Congress, Tom, and it really is something that whether you're a small contractor or a large contractor, you really ought to be paying close attention to what's happening on the suspension and debarment front. Traditionally, suspension and debarment has not been used as a punishment for failure to comply with government contracts, at least not in and of itself. What suspension and debarment officials have traditionally been looking for is evidence of current responsibility, current responsibility on the part of the company or on the part of specific people attached to that company. But now we have Senator Elizabeth Warren and Senator Lujan from New Mexico sending a letter to DOJ essentially saying, we don't think there are enough suspensions and debarments, and we think you ought to be encouraging the IG community to increase this as a tool. Ironically, it's not IGs or the Department of Justice that do the lion's share of suspension and debarment actions, Tom. Each agency has a designated official for that purpose. So right away, it's maybe a little bit of a disconnect, but also I think a lot of political pressure, and it's not just from the senators. We're seeing some House members get into the act as well, trying to expand the basis on which 
companies could find themselves in front of a suspension or debarment official. And look, if you're sitting there, you have to understand that you have to show why you're presently responsible. If you've been accused of wrongdoing in the past, what is it that you've done to take intermediary steps to clean everything up? And it could be things that don't even have to do with a specific performance on your government contract either. It could be something that another part of your business did that you don't really have any control over. And yet now the suspension of debarment officials are being pressured to put new standards in front of you on why you should remain eligible to do business with the government. Yes, it seems like maybe the statute makers don't quite understand the statutes surrounding debarment and suspension because there are statutory limits on the government's ability to do that. And it's not because if you don't like what the company does somewhere over here that you can suspend or debar them for what it's doing for the federal government over there. Well, and that certainly has been the, the basis of suspension and debarment actions uh, the great majority of the time to the present time, Tom. We'll have to see if suspension and debarment officials can withstand some of the pressure they're getting. Have to see whether the Department of Justice feels it's appropriate to send out new memos to those officials and exactly what the uh, effect of that memo or the directive might be uh, in people that don't really report up to DOJ. So we'll have to see. You know, one of the things I remember years ago talking to a senior congressional staffer but Congress does wield significant power, this person said. But every time Congress wields it, it's kind of a meat axe approach. It's not really precision or labor. I think this is a good example of what that staffer was talking about. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. 
Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took pre um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, Jane, it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is 
to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? And I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. 
And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.